all of you received the prayer guide when you came in through the doors. If you didn't, they are available outside um, the doors as you exit. This is a, a guide that takes us through this week of prayer. It's been uh, uh, a long-standing tradition here at the church that we take the first full week of January to dedicate ourselves in prayer. And I think that is a, a very fitting and appropriate thing. I think it's really important. In fact, you guys received a letter from me at the beginning of December just calling on us to take this week seriously. The guide is because we know not everyone can come out to every event. So we have something tomorrow night, we have something Tuesday morning, we have something Wednesday night, we have something Thursday morning, and then we end with a big thing next Sunday night. Well, we know not everyone will be able to make it to every one of those events, but we want you to be able to be in prayer regardless. So this guide will walk you through that. It tells you when the meetings are, where they're at, but also if you on your own or want to gather with your family and pray, that's a great thing to do. In fact, next Friday and Saturday, we're encouraging you if you have family to pray with your family, no matter how old your children are, include them in that. So please take advantage of that. Our, our sermon this morning is going to be on prayer um, to kind of set the tone for the week. And, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this week very much into praying together with you. Also want to let you know that next week we begin our new series, and our new series is going to be in the books of Jonah and Nahum, and the, uh, the title for the series is How to Stand in the Face of Evil, How to Stand in the Face of Evil. Two wonderful books, two very different books. Next week I'm going to do an overview of, of the two books together and the series, and then we'll start into Jonah the week after that, but if you're I know there are several of you who, who take time to read through the passages that will be being preached on. If you're one who does that, I would encourage you to read through both Jonah and Nahum this week. They're not that long. Um, they're, they're three and four chapters, so you can read through them very easily in one sitting. So um, just choose a night to, to do both, or choose two nights and read one each, and, and that'll help you prepare your mind and heart for the sermon coming up. The last thing I want to say before we dig into the Word is um, last week I mentioned uh, these two Bible reading plans that were available if you want to be reading through the Bible this year. One takes you through the whole Bible in a year, <clears throat> and the other one takes you through the whole New Testament in a year, just reading five minutes a, five minutes a day, five times a week. So um, I think we ran out of guides last week, if I'm not mistaken. So we've put some more out there, and I know some of you weren't here last week, so if you want to take a shot at being regularly in the Word, uh, reading either through the whole New Testament or the whole Bible, there are some guides at the welcome desk that you can pick up. Well, with that, we are going to be uh, looking at what the Bible has to say about prayer. And so I'd like to take, invite you to take your Bibles and open them to James chapter 5. That's on page 1013 if you're using the Bible in the pew rack. James chapter 5. We'll be looking at uh, verses 16 through 18. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 16 from James chapter 5. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, 
and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Please be seated as we pray. God, we pray that as we look to your word, you would teach us how to pray. And that we would learn what you want us to learn. And that we'd unlearn what you want us to unlearn. That we might be people who glorify our Christ in our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we learn to pray? How do we learn to pray? I'll tell you for myself, I learned to pray by listening to other people pray. So I grew up in church, and I grew up around Christians, grew up around a family that prayed, and so I heard prayers all the time. And from the prayers that I heard in church and in other places in Christian settings, I learned to pray. But then I learned to pray again. It started around college. And I started to dig into the Bible. And I noticed that there are these beautiful prayers recorded in the Bible. And I started to use them. And I started to study them. And as I dug more and more into the Bible, it became a passion of mine to see what does the Bible have to say? What does God's Word have to say about prayer? And through the years in this quest to learn what the Bible has to say about prayer, I've learned five unexpected things that the Bible says about prayer. Now, not all five of these things will be unexpected for you because probably you have learned much of your prayers from the Scriptures. But they were at least unexpected for me, and so if they're not unexpected for you, at least they're good truths from the Bible. So that's what I'm going to share with you today, five unexpected things the Bible says about prayer. And the first thing that I want to tell you, the first unexpected truth about prayer from the Bible is this, prayer is talking to God. Prayer is is talking to God. Now you're going, this was supposed to be a riveting sermon telling me things I'd never heard before. Many of you already get that. Duh, that's what prayer is. But there's actually, increasingly in evangelicalism, there's an influence from Eastern religions that is teaching us new things about prayer that aren't based on the Scriptures. And one of those things is this aspect of prayer that they call listening prayer. That part of our prayer life should be stopping, stilling ourselves, and hearing what God has to say. The logic for me was this. People said, nobody likes a one-way conversation. Conversation is supposed to be two ways. You talk, but you also listen. How much more so when you're talking to the God who created you? You need to be listening and not just talking. It's compelling logic, and I'll get to it in just a minute because I think there's a lot to be said for that. But here's the truth. The word pray, by definition, means to ask, to request. It's a talking word. By definition, the word prayer is that. Moreover, 
you will not find one model prayer in Scripture. There's not one time where prayer is held up in a positive way, somebody's prayer is held up in a positive way, where it includes them stopping and pausing and being silent and listening for some voice. It's not in the Bible. It's common practice in some circles of Christianity, but it is not in the Bible. Now, what you do find when you dig into those scriptural prayers is that they are influenced significantly by what God has said already in the scriptures. And that's where I think the listening comes in, right? So it's not that we don't listen to God. First of all, let's just understand that's not prayer. There's two things we do in our growth. We go to God's word and hear what he has to say. So we go to the Bible, not our silence and our own inner voices, but we go to the Bible itself and see what he is saying, Bible reading, and then we talk to him. So there is a two-way conversation. We talk to him about what he has said, and we interact with what he has said, and we let that drive our prayers. So, it is appropriate to listen. We do want a two-way conversation. In fact, as you'll see as I go through these five unexpected truths, a lot of, a lot of our shortcomings in prayer are because we don't listen enough to what God has already said, and we don't allow the Scriptures to shape our prayers. So that was the first point. Prayers talking to God. Maybe not groundbreaking, maybe not revolutionary, but important to establish. The second unexpected thing the Bible teaches us about prayer is this. You can pray like Elijah. You can pray like Elijah. So hopefully your Bibles are still open in James chapter 5, the passage I just read. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I remember reading that as a teenager and into college and thinking, okay, I believe everything the Bible says, but I'm not willing to pray that it wouldn't rain because I just don't want to test it. Sure, I'm just like Elijah. Sure, I could pray that it wouldn't rain and it won't rain. Sure, that's what the Bible says, but well, maybe I just don't have as much faith as Elijah. I didn't really know what to do with it. But then, through the course of my Bible reading, I was reading through 1 Kings 18, where the story of Elijah is told. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't get into all the details of his praying and his not praying. There's only one prayer mentioned in 1 Kings 18. But look with me. Go back to 1 Kings 18. This is on page uh, 299 if you're using the Pew Bible. 1 Kings 18. We're just going to begin at chapter, or verse 1 of 1 Kings 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and look at this, and I will send rain upon the earth. 
Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. God says that to Elijah. Clear revelation. This is what I'm going to do. There's no question about it. God has said it. It's going to be done. And so he does that. He goes and shows himself to this wicked king, Ahab. And there's this big showdown on the top of Mount Carmel. And all of Ahab's uh, false prophets are killed. And then look at the end of chapter 18. And verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. There's the prayer right there. He says to his servants, go go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And then he said, go again. Seven times. And the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So, yes, Elijah prayed that there would be rain, and the rain came. But he did so after God had already said, this is what I'm going to do. And as he was doing it, he kept sending a sermon saying, is it happening? Is it happening? Is it happening? Until it happened. I think that is the kind of prayer that James, the book of James, is calling us to. It's not to summon enough faith. Um, I'm going to go out and prove God's existence by saying tomorrow there will be no snow in Georgetown and I'm going to pray publicly that there will be no snow in Georgetown and I'm going to do it and there will be no... That's not the kind of prayer that it's being called to. It's saying, look to what God has said. It's the prayer of a righteous man. A man who knows what God has said that availeth much. So we pray in light of what God has said He's going to do. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray... Do you notice what he taught them to pray? Hallowed be thy name. Well, is God's name not going to be hallowed? Is it not a holy name? Thy kingdom come. Hasn't God already said that his kingdom is coming? Is there any doubt that his kingdom is going to come? Thy will be done. Well, maybe God's will won't be accomplished. Maybe man will be able to thwart God's will. Give us this day our daily bread. Right after he teaches on prayer and teaches him to pray that, God says, don't worry because I will provide your daily bread. Just like I provide for the sparrows, just like I provide for the lilies, I'm going to provide for you. Lead us not into temptation. Or, I, sorry, I forget. Forgive us our debts. Has God not already promised that he'll forgive our debts? Lead us not into temptation. We know that that is a prayer God will answer. Deliver us from evil. God will ultimately triumph over evil. All the requests in the Lord's Prayer are things that God has already said He's going to do. The amazing thing is that God chooses to accomplish His purposes through our prayers. He used Elijah's prayers to accomplish what he'd already said he was going to do. So, if you want to pray like Elijah, you can pray like Elijah. Turn to the Scriptures and let what God has said he's going to do drive how you pray. All right. Our third unexpected thing the Bible says about prayer. 
you may be praying like a pagan. You may be praying like a pagan. See, there's a, there's a pagan view of God. By pagan, I mean any religion that isn't Christianity. There's a pagan view of God that says, I can manipulate God to get him to do what I want him to do. Or I can manipulate in those days the gods to get them to do what I want them to do. And so there's different ways you try and uh, make God feel like he owes you one. So sometimes you inflict great pain or suffering or you, or you make some big sacrifice of your own, for yourself. Okay, if I just give all this up, then God will be obliged to help me out. Or sometimes you try and do something really, really nice for God or the gods. So if I just do this for you, then you'll do this for me, right? That's, that is not the view of the God of Scripture. Or that is not the view of God as presented in the Scripture. The God of Scripture is not someone who needs to be manipulated or cajoled. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he is accomplishing his good purposes. So, look at Matthew chapter 6. Again, Jesus teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. This is on page 811. 811 of the Bible in the Purak. We're going to look at verses 7 through 18. I'm sorry, 7 through 13. Listen to, this is Jesus teaching on prayer. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When I, was, uh, when I was younger, I had a friend who was going through some spiritual crisis. And I told my friend that I would pray for her for half an hour straight. And I felt like that would be, God's really going to use the prayer if I pray for half an hour. And so I started to pray for my friend Ruth. And I prayed for about five or six minutes. I was like, I've prayed everything I can think of. So I started trying to think of more things to pray and different ways of phrasing it. And I kept saying more and more things, but it was really just more of the same, more of the same, so that I could fill up that half an hour, thinking that if I prayed half an hour, somehow that would be a more powerful prayer than if I just prayed what God had laid on my heart and brought that to him. But that is actually, according to God's, what Jesus teaches on prayer, is a way the pagans or the Gentiles pray. That is a false view of God. God knows what we need already, so we don't need to heap up our many words to try and convince Him that we're really earnest in our prayers. Now, the Bible's not 
against long prayers. Jesus will go away for a whole night and pray. And there, there are long prayers recorded in the Scriptures. Uh, there's one that we'll look at later that if I just read it to you, it would take about 15 minutes for me to read it to you. So God's not against long prayers. He's against a view of Himself that says, if I, say, if I make my prayer long enough, it's more holy. It's more likely to be used. And you see this, you see this sometimes at prayer meetings. So we think that the longer our prayer meeting is, the more likely God is to hear it, the more spiritual we feel about ourselves. Or you're at a prayer meeting and one person gives voice to a prayer and then three or four other people feel like they need to pray for the exact same thing in the exact same way. I'm not talking about praying from a different perspective or things like that. But it's like, I, I, I know it's already prayed about, but I've got to pray about it again because we've got to make this prayer meeting keep going. We've got to fill the space. Because that's, that's what a godly prayer meeting is. Or sometimes, somebody just has a simple thought on their mind, and they come and they bring that to the Lord, but then they feel like, oh, that was too short of a prayer. So they start praying about everything they can think of. And they go on and on and on and on and on about all sorts of things. Praying around the world, we call it. Um, we're not heard for our many words. We bring our request to the Lord. The model prayer that God gives his disciples is a short prayer. You bring your request before the Lord and God is using your request to accomplish his purpose. That was groundbreaking for me. All right. The fourth unexpected thing the Bible says about prayer. God is not a genie. God is not a magical genie in a bottle. All right, look with me at back in James chapter 4 this time. So it's not on page 1013, it's on page 1012. Chapter 4 verse 2. Again, I'm going to pick up in the middle of the verse. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here's how we often think about prayer. We often think that prayer is the way to get God to do what I want. I have some need. I have something that I think is important. I can't get it on my own, so I pull out my lucky rabbit's foot and I start rubbing it until it comes. God is my genie in the bottle that's there, poof, to serve me and give me what I want and what I need. It's a man-centered view of prayer. I don't like being sick. It stinks. So I'm going to ask God to make me better. I don't like being unemployed. It stinks. So I'm going to ask God to give me a job. I still don't have enough money. It stinks. So I'm going to ask God to uh, give me a raise or provide more money for me. I don't like dealing with the stress of having a bunch of little kids who don't listen to what I say. So I'm going to pray and ask God to get my children to behave so my life will be a little bit easier. And on, and on, 
and on. We have our desires and our needs, what's important to us, our health, our wealth, our prosperity. And God is our little genie. And we use prayer like a genie in a bottle that we rub and get our way. But God says in James, you have and you do not, or you ask and you do not receive, because you ask to spend it on your own passions. I want you to imagine for a moment that we're at war, or there is a war, and there are two generals who have their line of communication with central command. And the first general has a practice, and he has a reputation. He likes to throw big, opulent parties and feasts for himself, and eat and gorge himself and waste all sorts of food as he parties and he celebrates whatever small victories had. And then there's another general who understands what the mission is. And he's always pushing his troops to the ultimate, to the limits, to try and accomplish the mission, to try and get after what they need to get after. He pushes his men hard. And because he pushes his men hard, he tries to make sure that they have what they need to be able to do what he's asking of them, to have the shelter and the clothing and the food and the munitions they need. So central command gets a call from each of these generals. There's a, both are requesting a large amount of food. Central command is going to give the food to the general who's getting after the purposes, the wider strategic purposes of the war. And they're going to start denying the request of this general over here who's just using it is an opportunity to gratify himself and feed himself and make his life better. I think you see what I'm getting after. How do you use prayer? Which general are you more like? Do you go to God and His Word and say, what are you trying to accomplish in this world? That's what I want to be about in my life, and so I'm going to start praying in light of that. I'm going to start letting your priorities... And what you're trying to get after, drive how I pray. Well, it's those kind of prayers. Prayers that aren't about suiting your own passions that God says are the ones He answers. John Piper put it like this. He said, a lot of us view prayer as a domestic intercom in our mansion." As a way, you press a button and you get the servant to come give you what you need. But the view of prayer in the Scriptures is a wartime walkie-talkie. I'm in the battle, and I need some help. God is not a genie. Prayer should not be man-centered. What do I need? Prayer should be God-centered. What is God about? What does he need? And how can I, through my prayers, be about that? Now, a couple little caveats on this. A little, I want to speak with nuance on this. Number one, 
it doesn't mean we never bring things we need and our, our own concerns to the Lord. So I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's facing the cross. And he knows full well that he has to die in order to accomplish the redemption of the world. That's clearly what God's about. But what does he pray? If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It's not a wrong prayer to say, here's what I need. You're my loving father. I'm your child. I'm your son. I have need, and here's my need. But what does Jesus pray after that? Yet, not what I will, but what thy will be done. So do you see, even him, in him expressing what his personal need is, God, I'd really like to not have to suffer the way I'm about to suffer. He still, his ultimate prayer is, but I want your will to be accomplished. So I'm not saying you could never pray about your sickness or your unemployment or whatever else. God wants to hear those things. I think biblically, not even in just that prayer, but in other, other passages, God, who is your loving Father if you're in Christ, loves you as your child and He's eager to give you good things. It's, it's good to bring those things before the Lord. So I'm not saying don't. What I am saying is submit those things to the more important theme of thy will be done even as you bring those things before the Lord. So, let me explain it this way. I think it changes your prayers, this, this concept that God's not a genie or that it's not God here to help me, but it's God using my prayers to accomplish His purposes. That, that shift in thinking does two things. One is it changes what you pray for. So, um, I've sometimes heard church prayer meetings called organ recitals because they, you know, pray for Susie's liver, pray for Bobby's lungs, pray for James's brain, whatever it is. You know, you go through all the different organs, right? Well, when you look at the prayers of Scripture, that represents just this little smidgen of the types of things that are prayed for in the Scriptures. Because the prayers of scriptures match what is God trying to do in this world. So one of the things that this is going to do is change what you pray for. Now all of a sudden, the things that are like, you know, hey, I, I, you know, I have these needs, these personal needs that will make my life easier, they're going to become a smaller and smaller portion of your prayers. Not because you're praying for them less, but because you're praying for a lot of other things that the Bible dri- drives you to pray for. But it also changes how you pray for those things. Okay? So, again, uh, Susie's liver. Hope there's no Susie here with liver problems. Um, Susie's liver, she's dealing with this liver issue. How do I pray for that? If I'm thinking God is my genie to help my life get better, then all I pray is God heal Susie and do it quickly. And while, you're wait, while she's waiting for her to be healed, make her pain go away. That's all I pray. But if I'm saying, what, is, what, is God, what are God's purposes in this? What is it God's trying to do in this situation in Susie's life? Let's, let's say Susie's a believer. God, I know that you wouldn't have allowed this if you didn't have purposes in it. I don't know what those purposes are, Lord. 
But God, I pray that you would help Susie to walk through this trial in a way that honors you and brings you praise so that the people, her family, the doctors, the people around her, friends, her neighbors who see her walk through this awful ordeal with her liver can see that you are real by the way she walks through this time, that your name might be glorified. God, I pray for Susie that she would come to know you with depth that she would never know you otherwise except that she goes through this. That she'd know your character and see your love and see the sufficiency of Christ in greater ways. God, I pray that through this liver ordeal, she would long all the more for the good kingdom that Jesus will one day usher in. Do you see how I'm not just praying for her healing, but I'm praying for what is God trying to do through this situation? So it doesn't just change the content of your prayer or what you're praying for. It also changes the way you pray for those very things. So that's the fourth thing. God is not a genie. And the fifth unexpected thing the Bible says about prayer. Your faith isn't too small. Your God is. Your faith isn't too small. Your God is. Now, I want to quickly qualify that because your faith actually can be too small and God is not too small. So let me explain myself. Um, There's an idea out there that in my early years I was exposed to because of certain churches that we attended that the more you believe it, the more likely you are to get it. Sometimes this theology is the shorthand we use for it is name it and claim it. I believe this can be mine, God. I claim it as mine. If I just have enough faith, I can claim it as mine and it can be mine. So um, my kids have been watching uh, Prince of Egypt, an old, an old cartoon about or animated feature about uh, Moses. And there's a song at the end, there can be miracles when you believe. I think Christianity, like many other religions, has been just kind of smushed into just that. Well, isn't belief nice? And God does things through our belief if you just have enough faith. And so we pray and we pray and we think, I'm not getting what I think I should be getting because it must be some problem with me. My faith isn't big enough. But it's a wrong view of how the dynamic between faith and God works. So let me give you an illustration that I think is really helpful. I'm just complimenting my own illustration. This is going to be the best illustration you've ever heard. Um, it was helpful to me when I first heard it. So you're driving along. A man's driving along. And he comes to an old rickety bridge. He gets out of his car. He says, I believe that bridge can hold me. I believe with all my heart. Might be a big vehicle. Might have only been intended for walking. But I believe it can hold me. He gets into his car. He's got enough belief. And he drives out onto the bridge. And it crumbles and he falls to his death. The amount of his belief had no bearing on whether he could get over that bridge. Now, somebody else is driving along. 
and they come to a bridge that is sturdy and structurally sound. But they're the type that needs to inquire on their own. They don't, they're not sure. They've heard about bridges collapsing before. And so he's an engineer, so he gets out of his car, and he's going to take a look at this bridge. He's doubting. He's not sure. But the way he strengthens his faith is not by summoning it up himself, but by examining the bridge. And because the bridge is structurally sound, and because it has been well designed, and he sees that and he knows that as he looks, his faith is strengthened. Not because he has summoned faith in himself, but because the object of his faith has proven to be of worth. And he climbs into his car and he drives safely across the bridge. He had enough faith to drive across the bridge. But it wasn't because he conjured it himself up in himself. It's because he examined the object of his faith. And that is how faith and, and, in, in, and our prayers work together in the scriptures. So we look to God and we see who God is in all His strength. We examine God, and it's as we look at God that God fills up our faith because it's appropriate faith. It's sound faith because we have a God who is strong and mighty. So instead of thinking, I need to summon up enough faith, no, I need to look at God because my view of God is too small. I need to have a bigger view of God. As you examine your own prayer habits and the prayer habits of those you've grown up listening to and start to compare them to the prayers of Scripture, well, I don't know what will happen for you, but the most, the most jarring difference, the, most, the point of, of least congruity was on this point. When you read the prayers of Scripture, they're just chock full of statements about who God is and His greatness and what He's done in the past and who He is in His character. There's one great example. There's lots of great examples of this, but there's one I want you to look at. It's in Nehemiah chapter 9. That's on page 404 if you're using the Pew Bible. Nehemiah chapter 9. This is the, this is the one that I said I could read it. It would take me 10 or 15 minutes to read through the whole prayer. This prayer starts, chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, it starts in verse 6 and goes all the way through 38. And there's, this prayer is one request. There's just one request, which we don't see until verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And this is the one request in the whole prayer. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. That's the only request in the whole prayer. It's a prayer that I could, again, if I read it, it would take me over 10 minutes to read to you. That's the only request. Look. Put your eyes down and look. I'm going to just going to be awkward silence for a minute while you look starting at verse 6 and just scan down and see what they say 
up until that point and after that point in the prayer. Just look. It's a whole history of God's acting. It starts with creation. And it states everything that He has done, how, how the people have rebelled, but God has continued to be faithful to do exactly what He said He was going to do, sometimes bringing judgment because he, that's what He said if there's going to be rebellion. But God has been strong and mighty and faithful, and He is the powerful one. All the way up until that point. All the way up. And then there's the request. And then it's back to God's faithfulness again and who He is and His character. Is that our view of God? That when we pray, we can't stop talking about who He is and what He has done and His character such that then we bring our requests before Him because we have a big God? Indeed, we pray little because our God is too small. He is not too small in point of fact, but He is too small in our own perspective. Your faith isn't too small. Your God is. So when Jesus tells his disciples that the, this demon didn't come out and his child wasn't healed because they lacked faith, we can't twist that to mean you've got to conjure it up. You've just got to have enough faith. If you just really believe it, God can do it. What he means is you don't have a right view of God. Because if you have a right view of God, you will have the faith to be able to drive over the bridge. Have a right view of God. Let that drive your prayers. There's a lot more we could say from the Bible about prayer, but I hope this gets you started. I hope these, these five truths get your mind going and saying, look, I actually need to re-examine my prayer life. And I need to start to not, not see how can God be in service of what I want, but how can I be used of God to accomplish what He's desiring. And what that means is I do need to be listening to God, but not listening in kind of this mind-emptying way where I listen to voices in my head and hope it's God but where I actually look to God's Word and say, what have you said you're about? What have you said you're doing? And I'm going to take those things and let those affect how I come before you. That's the kind of prayer we're getting after. Not where I think, oh, if I just pray long enough and heap up enough words, God's going to be obliged to hear me. But God, you are using me to accomplish your purposes, so I'm going to pray as it's on my heart and not feel guilty if it's a short prayer. Like I'm a lesser Christian. Actually, I'm just obeying what Jesus said. So, when I was little, um, my mom thought it would be a good idea for us to eat fruit. So she went to the grocery store, which I'm not that old, but I'll stay. In those days, the grocery store's produce department was not like it is today. And she would find some, you know, six-month-old red delicious apple and buy it and put it on our table and it would sit there for a week and a half on our table and then she'd say it's time to eat an apple and she would cut it up and I would have this grainy tasteless thing in my mouth and I knew I did not like apples 
until one day I went to an orchard. It was peer pressure. I liked a girl. She was going to the orchard. I'll go to the orchard. I picked an apple from the tree. It was a gala. And I took a bite of it. It was crisp, crisp and sweet. It was delicious. And ever since then, I knew I like apples. I don't know if this is the case for you, but I think prayer can be much like that. I don't like coming to church prayer meetings. I don't like prayer. It's not appetizing to me. Maybe it's that we've been eating stale, old, red delicious apples and not what God intends us to eat. So I want to challenge you in this next week, this week of prayer. The prayer guide that we've put together is actually, all it is, if you've looked at it, is Scripture. It's just different prayers in Scripture. Pray through those prayers. That's all we're going to do together. It's not a bunch of things, this is what we need as a church, this is what we want as a church, this is what we're trying to accomplish as a church. No, it's, what is God in the model prayers he's given us in Scripture, what has he called us to pray for? Use this. Use it on your own. Use it with your family. Come to our prayer times. We've been trying to intentionally structure our prayer times as a church so that they're built in these ways that we've just described. I think what you'll find is a taste of prayer God's way is sweet and crisp and leaves you wanting more doesn't mean there still won't be battles to be disciplined and, and get after prayer. It's still, it's still a struggle for me to pray as often as I'd like to and as I think I should. Something I have the pastors keep me accountable on. Because I want to be more in prayer. So I'm not saying it's just, hey, you start praying God's way. And, but I will say, I desire my prayer times. I long for them. They're sweet and they're good when, I, when we pray as God intends. So let me close this in prayer. God, I don't know, uh, I'm sure it's different for everybody in this room, this teaching on prayer from your word. For some, everything is new and groundbreaking. For others, it's very consistent with what they've always known and affirming. God, it's my heart that I, as pastor of this church, and all of us, as a people of this church, would pray increasingly so in ways that are shaped by what your word has said, that we learn to pray from your word and not just from the prayers we hear around us. That we would be people who understand what prayer is about. You accomplishing your purposes and including us in that. And that we delight to pray. That we be persistent in prayer. I even pray that this week we'd start to form new prayer habits that can carry us not just this week, but this year and the years ahead. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite those who are going to be serving up to the front. We're going to have a time of communion. Communion is a time that God has ordained. He has set this up 
As a time for us to remember what Jesus has done for us. It's a picture of the body of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice on the cross. It's a picture of how he fulfilled the Passover lamb and and what the Passover represented. As such, it's a beautiful thing for us as believers to do together. But also, the Bible says, if you're somebody who's not a believer, who you haven't embraced Jesus as your king and said, yep, I love his kingdom and I want to be a citizen of his kingdom, this is not something you should take. Because it's something that has power. It is something that God is using in our lives. And if you take it in a way that you don't really believe it, the Bible says that's not good or healthy for you. And if your life right now is flaunting rebellion against that king. So you say you're a Christian, but you're saying, yeah, but I don't care to follow what Jesus has said. The Bible also says, don't take communion. Don't say, I'm unifying myself with the body and blood of Christ if that's not how you're living. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. If we had to be perfect in order to take communion, none of us could. I couldn't. But those areas in my life that I see are out of line, I am consciously fighting against and saying that's not who I want to be and seeking God's help. So if you're in a state of saying, God, that's not who I want to be, I'm looking for your help, please do take of communion. I'm going to pray and then we'll distribute the elements. God, I thank you for what we have before us and the picture that it is. I pray, Lord, that as we take of the bread and the cup, that you would minister to us. That this connection that we have with Christ is more than just a wafer and some juice. But it's a spiritual reality. A reality that sustains us more than even food and water sustain us in this life. In Christ's name, amen.